We're in Galatians, and our text this morning now, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Galatians 4, verses 12 to 20. And if thus far in Galatians we haven't grasped it, or we've somehow missed it, then it becomes perfectly clear in this text what our apostle wants more than anything else, doesn't it? Writing to the Galatians in verse 19, my little children, he calls them, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. That's what Paul wants. New creation. That's what Paul wants to see in the Galatians. He says it in verse 15 of chapter 6, very end of the book. Chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Christ formed in you. It's like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what Paul wants. And that's what I want as your pastor. And I can tell you with certainty that that's what your bishop wants too. Above all other things, please believe me when I say that. Above all other things, above bigger services on Sundays, or more money, or planning lots of churches as a denomination, or success defined in whatever metric is now commonly used these days in the church planting world, or even in the world more broadly, give it all up, because it's all about one thing, or we're missing the point. Christ formed in you. Paul's in agony over that, to be real for the Galatians. We're in the middle of this letter. We've been through the argument that started midway into chapter 2 of Galatians, and then took off in 3 and sailed, and then ended just a bit into 4. We should already, at this point, have an idea of what Christ formed in you means. But just to make sure we're tracking, let me do this. Let me show you three verses from previous parts of Galatians that get at the heart of this to try and stay with the flow of thought somewhat. And then I'll come back and we'll talk through what Paul says in verses 12 to 20 and fill in all of that. So I'm starting with verse 19 from our text, because this is what Paul wants. Christ formed in you. Then three links going back into the book. First, not far, just go back to verse 6 of chapter 4. We're at the end of Paul's extended argument that he started in 3, 4, verse 6, and because you Galatians are sons, children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son i.e. the Spirit of Christ, into our hearts, crying, Abba, 
Father. So verse 19 says Christ is to be formed in us. And verse 6 says the way that happens is by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. Secondly, then, go back a whole chapter to chapter 3, verse 5. Jumping back to the beginning of Paul's extended argument. Does he who supplies the Spirit, i.e., God, right? We just saw that in chapter 4, verse 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Christ is to be formed in you. That happens by the Spirit. And chapter 3, verse 5 says, that happens by the hearing of faith. And that part of chapter 3, you remember this, was the launching pad for the entire argument we spent many weeks on in chapter 3 and up to verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul starts with the Spirit. Why? Because that's how Christ is formed in you, brothers and sisters. And then just to see it again, thirdly, then the third link is back to chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says much the same, but makes it personal. 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ, watch this, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ who lives in me is the Spirit. It's the Spirit. Christ is to be formed in you. That's what Paul wants. That happens by God sending the Spirit of Christ into your heart because it's the new covenant. We've talked about those texts. It's the new creation, right? We've talked about that. And that happens in your heart by the hearing of faith and not by the works of the law. We talked all about that in the history of Israel. And then according to chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I'm the living example. I'm a living example of that reality, right? I'm living it. You see that? So then it's not so surprising that Paul starts where he does in our text for today. Verse 12, chapter 4. If you want to look there at the beginning of our text for today. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, the masculine plural there in Greek does not mean Paul's just talking to men. I do wish the ESV had a bit more gender inclusiveness at some points. This would be one of those points. In fact, my version of the ESV has a footnote indicating brothers and sisters, which is nice. I know it's not in yours, but is it? Oh, good. It's at the bottom. Okay. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> all people, I entreat you, Paul says. Become as I am. Become as I am. In other words, imitate what I have become. Crucified with Christ, Christ living in me, new creation, the old gone, the new come, become as I am, Galatians 4, I also have become as you are, he says. I, Paul, the Jew, began to live as you. This is, I think, to say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 9, 21, Paul says, to those outside the law... 
I became as one outside the law. Why? To demonstrate the reality of the gospel. To demonstrate all I've been saying for three chapters about the hearing of faith and why then the law and the promises of God and the sonship and the blessing of Abraham and on and on become as I am. Oh, my dear Galatians, I want you, Paul says, to live out the reality of the presence of the Spirit in your lives. I mean, that's the letter, really, right there. I want you to live out the reality of the presence of the Spirit in your lives. Or, to say the same thing, I am in anguish, Paul says, until Christ is formed in you. Which, of course, has a very immediate application for the Galatians, right? Don't get circumcised. Don't listen to those agitators from Jerusalem who are coming to you with a gospel that's no gospel at all. Because this isn't the end of Paul's line of thought, right? Next week, if you just glance at the rest of four, we take up Paul's final Old Testament argument in verses 21 to 31, chapter 4. It's pretty tricky. Not especially looking forward to it, just because it's quite complicated. But then we get to five. <laughs> I'm already wrestling with how to talk about the rest of chapter 4 to you next week. Then we get to five. And then what's chapter 5 all about? What's chapter 5 all about if you've looked at it? Living by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit, which is the same as what? Christ being formed in you. Christ being formed in you. Do you see that? It's the same thing. I know I'm, I'm just beating this drum over and over today and in other Sundays, but it's because I personally totally missed it. I totally missed this point for well near the first at least 10 years of my life as a Christian. I don't know how. I don't know what. I don't know why this wasn't ever clear to me, but I don't want you to miss it because it's central to Paul. It's central to the... The Spirit is the absolutely central ingredient of life in Christ. The Spirit. I don't know. Maybe my Baptist church was afraid of Pentecostals or something, but <laughs> the Spirit is absolutely the central ingredient of life in Christ. It's the cross, which I heard a lot about. It's the cross plus the Spirit. Plus the Spirit. The cross of Christ sets you free to live by the Spirit. And what happens when you live by the Spirit? When Christ is formed in you? Well, what happens is chapter 5, you delight in God's will, walking in step with the Spirit. You find you're freed from the burden of the law because you're given the power to fulfill it from within. So, I mean, Paul's going to say that. We'll talk about it. You you, you could go and you could read then, for example, Psalm 119 this week, and you just say, yes. Yes, that's me. Praise God. I mean, that's the rest of Galatians in a nutshell, right? Christ formed in you. 
which means living by the Spirit. So there'll be a lot more to come on that. What we have here in verses 12 to 20 that comes after this extended argument of 3 and 4 and before this next Old Testament reference and then the, the chapter 5, which if you want to think of it as the application chapter, in a way, you could. Between these, these things is, is, is this deeply personal appeal of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. And I think it's where it is here because Paul goes here then after finishing his extended argument. You remember where Paul ended last week in verse 11. Paul was afraid. I am afraid, he says, verse 11, I may have labored over you in vain. Next words are, verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am. Something's happened to you, Galatians. You've changed. You're not like you once were. Remember when I was with you, among you? Do you remember my initial visit to Galatia? Do you? Because then it was clear. It was clear you got the gospel. It was clear you were indeed blessed. So Paul's going back to that. He's reliving what it was like before to explain why he's so worked up now. And it comes a bit abruptly. It seems a bit abrupt. It is a bit abrupt. The shift at the end of verse 12. You did me no wrong, he says. When I was with you in person, you did me no wrong, which I think means you didn't react to my preaching and to my presence in the way lots of others did. Verbally, physically harming me, you didn't. I mean, I, you remember Acts, right? At least a little bit. A little bit of Acts. First missionary journey. Where is Paul? First missionary journey. He's in Galatia. Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derby. What sorts of things happened to him? Sometimes from Jews, sometimes from Gentiles. Pisidian, Antioch, Acts 13, Luke writes, Paul was reviled. Persecution was stirred up against him there in Acts 13. They were driven out, Pisidian, Antioch, to Iconium, where unbelieving Jews stirred up Gentiles and they attempted to mistreat Paul and his companions and stone them, it says. So they go then from Iconium to Lystra and then Derby, Acts 14, they stone Paul in Derby. They stone him. And they drag him out of the city, supposing him dead. Do you remember that? First missionary journey. And just listen then to Acts 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city where they had stoned him, and you know, then he didn't die, and it's this miraculous thing. And, and, and they'd made many disciples, it says, and then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Remember that? They go back. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, Luke writes, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, listen, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I just wonder if that's not what Paul's talking about here. 
I can't be authoritative on this. Lots of commentators would not agree with me. But Paul says to these Galatians, we don't know exactly who he was writing to. Galatians, I mean, the whole area is Galatia, right? You did me no wrong. And then look at what Paul says in verse 13. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, many scholars suggest, and they, they may be right, that Paul was seriously ill in some way. Specifically, some scholars will argue Paul had this horrific eye condition. Right? is a reference in another book that he can't see very well. and I mean, they say they'll gouge out their eyes and give them to him. I mean, there's some who say Paul had this terrible eye, maybe kind of infection, maybe it's all, you know, whatever. Terrible. They could be right. It might be that. I tend to think that wasn't what Paul references here. I think, I think Paul's saying this. Galatians, you know I came to you beat up and disfigured and debilitated. The ESV translates it bodily ailment, but it's not that precise a term. Because of what I was proclaiming, because of persecution. I mean, right at the end of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 17, what does Paul say? If you go to 6, verse 17... From now on, Paul says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Do you notice that? The marks of Jesus. Who's Paul telling these Galatians to imitate, even as he desires Christ to be formed in them? He says, become like me. And what happened to Paul? He bore the marks of Jesus. You received me, Paul says, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You see that? So I think that's it, but even if it isn't, for reasons we don't know, Paul's physical condition required that he be diverted to preach to these Galatians. I mean, whoever exactly they are in this region, it says it was because of a bodily ailment. It was because, I'm saying, of his suffering, his condition, whatever it was, something physical had happened, he had to stop. He was diverted somehow. Evidently, it wasn't Paul's plan to be exactly with these people. It was God's plan. And Paul's suffering literally was the means of their salvation. You see that? Paul's suffering literally was the means of their salvation. It's key point. And the incredible thing is, Paul says, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Or in other words, you received me as the true messenger of the Lord. Footnote for the interested, 
because I can't resist it, the angel of God language, there it's likely, I think, and others think, it's likely a reference to the angel of the Lord who shows up a few times in the Old Testament. And, and we suggest, I would suggest that because Paul's Greek there is the standard Septuagint language for that. All of this to say, uh, Paul eats and breathes the Septuagint Greek, right? So it, he thinks of himself, what is he doing? He thinks of himself as the messenger of the Lord. Well, of course, he, chapters one and two, remember this? He knows where his authority comes from. He's the messenger of the Lord, and the Galatians received him as that. You see? And even more than that, they received him as the one who represented Jesus Christ. He's the apostle of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ himself. I think precisely because he bore the marks of Jesus when he saw them. Either way, Paul knows in his condition that the standard reaction would have been not what happened. It would have been scorn and to despise him. Literally, Paul says, to spit out, ektuo is the Greek verb. You should have spit me out. I mean, look at Paul knows what the Galatians pre-conversion Greco-Roman cultural religious world outlook should have led them to, right? To despise him. To spit him out. Why? Well, suffice it to say, without getting into it, that suffering in the Greco-Roman world wasn't exactly viewed as a sign of the blessing of the gods. Okay? These Galatians would have been inclined to look at Paul in his pitiful physical condition, whatever it was, even if it was some terrible illness or disfigurement, doesn't change the argument. Paul knows they would have been inclined not to accept him, but to see him as someone to be avoided because Paul had the appearance of someone suffering under the righteous rage of a god. I mean, that's the standard Greco-Roman view here. That's the reaction that, by all rights, the Galatians should have had. And they didn't. And they didn't. And his suffering somehow meant that he ended up there. We don't know why or how exactly. And it was all clearly the Lord's leading. Because it turns out, the Galatians had faith. Paul's condition didn't deter them. In fact, I'd argue it was Paul's suffering that in fact for these Galatians became the proof that he was the real deal. The conclusion is their eyes were open. Is it any wonder Paul says, builds his whole argument in chapter 3, beginning, you had the hearing of faith, Galatians. Did you get the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You had the hearing of faith. You believed what this physically repulsive man proclaimed. They saw that what Paul taught was true, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I just want to pause here for a moment. Because there's something important here for us which I'll only begin to touch on, but how do you respond to 
suffering in the life of others? How do you respond to suffering in the life of other Christians? Now, to your own life, in your own life too, you have to respond to suffering in your own life. But here I'm asking explicitly about how you respond to suffering that others go through. Not time to develop this, but I'd go so far as to say, biblically, that it's suffering, and even more precisely, how we navigate suffering in our lives. It's the way we engage suffering that, in fact, validates, authenticates, even demonstrates faith. And declares to the watching world the truth of the gospel. But you know what often happens, sort of subtly, maybe not so subtly, at least for myself I'll speak, we look at someone who's suffering, maybe in the church, and what do we think, what do we think sometimes if we're not, maybe, we think, wow, God's sure blessing me because I'm not suffering like that. Right? God must be blessing me because I'm, I'm not suffering like he is, she is. I mean, that kind of thinking is everywhere in the church. It is everywhere at least in the West. We thank God. We bless God. When? Mostly. Be honest. Well, in my experience as a pastor, it's when good things happen, right? I mean, that's just when it seems we just easily conclude that the hand of God must be at work. Good things are happening. And let me say it. Fine. It's good. I, good things happen. Thank God for them. That's right. That's right to do. I'm not saying it's terrible to have good things happen and you must try to pretend there aren't good things happening to you. It's good to thank God for the good things that happen in our lives and in our community and so on. But be careful, Christian. Be very careful. Because if we subtly start to think that God's blessing is defined as or somehow limited to the good stuff, then we miss, we miss a big piece of what it means to follow Jesus. You know, I work with a guy named Mario. I didn't say this in the 9 o'clock, see benefit of being at the 11. I work with, I work with a guy named Mario sometimes. I just found out this week, Mario's a Christian, formerly. He grew up going to church. He used to go to church. You know why he doesn't go to church anymore? Because he says it was all about how God's going to bless us for all, with all the good stuff. And we just, if we have faith, we'll receive God's blessing. And he said, it's not true. Didn't happen. I said, you're right. <laughs> it's not true. Turned him away from the church. It's not the gospel. 
Part of being a pastor means I get a window into people's lives in a unique way sometimes. And I don't want to, I don't, just as I don't want to deny that good things are the blessing of God, I also don't want to glorify suffering. So I'm not trying to do that. Suffering in its own, in, in and of itself, is not a good thing. In God's plan, suffering will be over one day. But on this side of the new heavens and the new earth, where we live by faith, I'll tell you where I've seen the power of the gospel most clearly at work. Where the power of the Spirit of God, Christ formed in you, clearly, I've seen it in the cries of faith on a hospital bed. Or the moments after you receive some dreaded phone call. Or I've seen it in the inexplicable joy from the world's perspective, inexplicable joy that wells up in the midst of the most severe trials of all kinds. And there's joy. I've seen it in the willingness, even the delight, even the welcoming of to go through persecution for the sake of Jesus. We know that's reality many places in the world. It's, it's reality here too in the West, just in somewhat different ways. Here's the point, and it would take a lot more to develop it than I can give it to you right now, but far from calling the authenticity of Paul's gospel into question, it was his suffering that validated it. It was his suffering that proved the presence of the Spirit of God. It was his suffering that made him like Jesus. Just read 2 Corinthians chapters 2, 3, and 4 this week. It's writ large. 2 Corinthians 2 to 4. This is a big deal biblically. The cross is the stumbling block. <laughs> the Galatians had started to shift away from it. And because of the agitators. Now we've got to go here. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? Paul says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You to cut off your right arm. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy? Galatians, your enemy? By telling you the truth, the truth about the gospel, the truth that you could lose everything in your foolishness, the truth about the agitators really being false brothers under a curse. Remember chapter 1? These other missionaries from Jerusalem have poisoned you, Galatians. They've been telling you, I, I preach this watered-down gospel lacking the full benefit of circumcision. They've been telling you it's grace plus aspects of law that leads to inheriting eternal blessing, it's a lie, Galatians. It's all grace. And there we are, back to the first or second sermon of Galatians. And if we've been successful over the last months, you've seen now that this is Paul's point. That was never the case. That was never it. That was never what the covenant required. That's never what the hearing of faith meant. That's never been the way to the blessing of the kingdom of God. And we looked at the history of Israel to see that. Verse 17, they, these agitators, make much of you, Galatians, but for no good purpose. 
They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. You follow these false teachers. You know what will happen? You'll be shut out. Shut out of the blessings of God, I think Paul means. Shut out of the inheritance. Shut out of the spirit. Shut out of eternal life. The gospel's on the line here, folks. Shut out of the blessings of Abraham. The agitators, in other words, if we, the agitators have got it all precisely wrong. And, and you see that if you've been with us through the last two chapters of this book as we've looked at how Paul has read and understood the Old Testament. Literally, verse 17 says, they have a zeal for you. That's the verb. They have a zeal for you. But it's not, Paul says, a zeal that comes out of a deep, God-formed concern for you, Galatians. It's ultimately for them. So that you might have a reciprocal zeal for them. It's exclusive. And oh, it's attractive for that reason. It's powerful. It's powerful to feel like you've got it all figured out. Like you've done what you need to get God's blessings. No suffering coming my way. Oh, watch out, brothers and sisters. If you think you're doing something that will mean you'll avoid suffering because somehow you've made it in with God? It's a lie, Paul says. It's a lie. And once you knew that, Galatians, because you received me. You once were willing to identify with me in my suffering to even take that on yourselves in any way you could. What happened? These agitators have a zeal for you that ends in death. But oh, my little children, I have a zeal for you that ends in life. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of. That's the same verb. To be, to be, you can't turn it into the passive. To be zealous, to be, to be made zealous of for a good purpose. I'm zealous for you, Galatians. That's what Paul wants them to know. And not just when I'm with you. Not only when I am present with you, he says, I'm zealous for you now. That's what's driving the pulse of this letter. Don't listen to these false teachers because you know what's driving them, Paul says. Here, oh, here the rubber meets the road. It's the exact opposite of what's driving me. You'll see it in chapter 6, verse 12, if you want to glance there. The end of the book, chapter 6, verse 12, as we close here, Paul says... These agitators, they would force you to be circumcised and only, oh, Paul calls them out, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Do you see that? It's Paul on the one hand and the agitators on the other. And you know how you can tell which one has the spirit and the others don't? And you know how you know whom to imitate and whom not to? Paul's willing to suffer. That's how. 
Paul's willing to be persecuted. Paul's willing to bear the marks of Jesus, and they weren't. Because they don't really have the Spirit. They aren't the children of God. They won't inherit the blessings. That's what this whole book is saying. And oh, Galatians, if only I could get you to see that clearly. Be like me. How he loves them. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ who died on a cross. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. You got it once. You're losing it. Oh, I'm in anguish that you get it again. I mean, do any of you need to hear what Paul's saying to the Galatians? And maybe you look back to some earlier time, your life and the Spirit was at work, and Christ was being formed in you, and, and then something changed. And you've just sort of settled into the world somehow. Just kind of settled. And you think like the world. And all this talk, all this, all this talk about suffering, and all that's coming in chapter 5 about walking with the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul uses that language elsewhere. Well, it's just not what you really want anymore. It's just not what you really seem to want. Brothers and sisters, Paul calls them brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, don't stop coming to hear Galatians. Come back, keep hearing Galatians, and pray. Pray for the hearing of faith. Pray for the changing of heart. And ask others to pray with you. Ask me, ask Miriam, ask Roger, ask anybody here you trust to pray with you. Because Paul wouldn't have written this letter if there was no hope for the Galatians. Hear that? Paul wouldn't have written it. There's hope. There's hope for you. Hope for Mario. And so it is with you. The Spirit can fill you afresh even today. And Christ can be formed in you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.